This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about Gaza, Scream movie cast member fired, UNSW study into child sexual abuse, Brad Pitt's complicated relationship with his children and the Home Affairs Minister being stood down. But we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into the real news, what is your personal headline of the week? I think I know. But... Oh, it's great. I mean, if you can see video, if anyone watches a reel this week, they're like, what's what's up with Hannah? I'm in Japan on holidays for two weeks. So we're recording this from a hotel room, but Sarah's in the studio. But it's been a lot of fun. So we've got six, six days left. Um, and it's just really nice to be away and take a break. So I've been thoroughly enjoying it. But this is going to be interesting, this record today. It's going to be a little different, but I'm loving the Japan content. You're kind of the self-preferred best shittest travel blogger in the world. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for saying self-professed. That's really, that's really important to me, Sarah. No, but I like it because I feel like when you're on Instagram, you see people traveling, you see the same touristy photos and the perfect outfits. And it's just not the reality. Like we are doing 25,000 steps and talking about our calf muscles most of the time. And I think it's important to, to show that too. I love it. I love it. What's been your personal headline of the week? Well, I'm not overseas, so it's been pretty boring in comparison, but I did go to a party on Saturday, which was really fun, and it had a really fun theme. It was rave cowboy. You are a cooler person than me. So what what was your outfit? What was was actually like the (laughs) intricacies of the event? The intricacy, I think the first time they pitched it on the event, they were like Bergain or Bergain cowboy, which is like the club in Berlin that's impossible to get into and you have to wear all black. So everyone was in all black. I think they wanted everyone to have a rave, but then they were also like, but girls look hot in cowgirl hats. So this was their like compromise on it. I love it. It Everyone looked hot. It was amazing from what I could see. Thank you. It was fun. I love a good theme. If anyone has good actual party themes, please send them through because I want to keep a list. I want to start tracking them. (laughs) All right. Should we get into the actual news? Let's get into it. The four-day ceasefire has been extended by an additional two days and 200 Australian journalists have signed an open letter criticising our media's coverage. Here's what you need to know about the latest developments in Israel and Gaza. So... So much has happened this week, and obviously I just want to start by saying that a lot is going to continue to happen over the next 48 hours in particular, and so we're recording this on Tuesday morning with the latest updates, but please keep a close eye on what is happening between Israel and Gaza at the moment. So... 
The truce between Hamas and Israel entered its fourth and potentially final day yesterday when Qatar, who are acting as mediator and helping to negotiate the terms of these extensions, announced the halt to fighting will be extended by an additional two days. So the Qatar foreign ministry said this extension has been negotiated in order to deliver additional aid into Gaza and release the largest possible number of hostages and prisoners. So... Over the first three days of the truce, Hamas released a total of 58 hostages, mostly women and children, in exchange for the release of 117 Palestinian prisoners. Now, at the moment, more than 14,854 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since the 7th of October. In Israel, the official death toll stands at 1,200. I also read on Al Jazeera that the general manager of hospitals in Gaza spoke with them and reported that hospitals in northern Gaza have not received any fuel during the truce, the field hospitals in Gaza now need five to seven days to start operating again, and the Israeli army destroyed 21 private hospitals and 13 public hospitals across the enclave, and only three hospitals are working in northern and central Gaza at the moment. Jesus. So it's, it's, it's just like the stats are overwhelming, and I think mm. like this five to seven days operational requirements to start functioning again for these hospitals, that was yesterday that I was reading that on Al Jazeera, so we're closer now, mm. but we would still need an extension beyond this two-day extension that's been announced this morning, earlier this morning. Can I ask as well, with the hostages, do they have hostages still? Or is that now the release of all the hostages? So prior to the latest releases, an Israeli spokesperson said the total number of hostages still held in Gaza on Monday was 184, including 14 foreigners and 80 Israelis with dual nationality. Mm. So Hamas said earlier it had received a list of 33 Palestinians to be released from Israeli jails in return. And this included three female prisoners and 30 minors, that making up the total 33 that they requested. Now, under the terms of the existing four-day truce agreement, Hamas was due to release in total 50 Israeli women and children held hostage in Gaza. There was no limit in the deal on the number of foreigners they could release, though. Mm. So this is kind of the latest updates on the releases, but obviously this is changing virtually by the hour. So it's really important to stay across this story. We're only giving weekly updates at the moment. So make sure you're paying attention, close attention as to what unfolds over the next few days. And one thing, I, and I'm sure you're about to get into this as well, but what we're seeing a lot of now is this criticism of media coverage, especially in Australia and in Western countries. And the letter, is that what you're going to go into? Absolutely. So this is a really sort of like I I think that a lot of people are underestimating the power of this this news. So basically what's happened is journalists, editors and senior media figures from the ABC, The Guardian, City Morning Herald, The Age and Schwartz Media have put their names to an open letter calling for greater scrutiny in the reporting of what is happening in Gaza and basically speaking to the imbalance, the the lack of fairness and the lack of truth in the reporting and it's beyond just these mastheads, but those are sort of the the major conglomerates. And and the major publications that are seeing people come forward and speak out against their own workplaces. Mm. So the prominent figures who signed the letter include Tony Armstrong, who many people would know from the ABC, and Benjamin Law and Jan Fran. It was also signed by the Union House Committees of the ABC and The Guardian, as well as the National Media Section Committee from the Media Union, which is the MEAA. So I just want to read out part of the letter because it's, it's really powerful. It's huge to go against your own company. And these are not small publications. These are our major publications. 
communication. Also for those people to come together. So it's it's mm. competitors coming together to stand together as employees and as journalists and say we want better from our workplaces and we want to provide the Australian public with truth. It's a powerful form of advocacy, I think. And I, I really think it's been underestimated because a lot of people haven't been hearing about this. No. And I think that also speaks to the way that the Australian media can silence particular stories when they unfold, which is what's happened here. I think it puts some faith back into Australian journalism, especially when that has been the criticism for the last few weeks that, like, you know, can we trust our main publications? And I, I don't know, I think this is great to see. Absolutely. And and just part of the letter reads, we call for an end to attacks on journalists and journalism itself. We also call for an end to violence against civilians of Gaza, the West Bank, Israel and Lebanon. The perpetrators of crimes against journalists and civilians will be held to account and Australian newsroom leaders to be as clear-eyed in their coverage of the atrocities committed by Israel as they are of those committed by Hamas. They In the letter, they also call on Australian newsrooms to undertake eight steps to to improve coverage and push forward their duty as journalists to deliver truth, to hold the powerful to account and to provide full context without fear of political intimidation. I'd, I'd recommend that anyone who's hearing this goes to Jan Fran's Instagram account. It's Jan underscore underscore Fran, I believe, and reads the letter in full. I've reposted it on Cheek. It's it's really powerful and it, it's, it's really bold. Like, it's really brave. And I think it's incredibly impressive from them. Agreed. Actress Melissa Barrera has been fired from the Scream franchise over comments she made over Instagram supporting Palestine. So this story is actually interesting, sort of following on from the story we just covered before. But essentially what's happened is Melissa Barrera, who's 33 years old, has been the lead actress in the Scream franchise for the last two movies, I believe. Have you seen Scream? No, I'm sorry. I'm not up with this. I'm, I'm learning so much of the story already, Sarah. <laughs> so it's really good, but she's pretty much the main character. And Scream is a huge franchise. Like it started in, I think, the mid 90s. It's grossed millions and millions of dollars. It starred some major names as well. Like it's had David Arquette, Drew Barrymore, Courtney Cox, Emma Roberts, Patrick Dempsey, I think Adam Brody's in one of the movies as well. And last year's Scream film, which Melissa was the lead off, was the highest grossing Scream film yet, I'm pretty sure. So this is a huge deal. So from what I understand, the original posts that she put on her Instagram stories read, I have been actively looking for videos and information about the Palestinian side for the last two weeks or so. Why? Because Western media only shows the other side. Why they do that, I will let you deduce for yourself. She then went on to say, censorship is very real. Palestinians know this. They know the world has been trying to make them invisible for decades. Keep sharing. Now, I'm not a follower of Melissa, but it has been reported that she was then pretty regularly posting after that about Israel-Gaza conflict and reshared one of the posts that accused Israel of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Now, following these posts, Variety then started reporting that the actress had been let go of the movie. And it was interesting because when that first sort of hit Twitter, I looked at the comments because I was like, oh, is this true yet? And all the comments were like, no, no way. There's no way they'd get away with doing that. And then right before the news officially broke, Melissa reshared a post to her stories, which read, at the end of the day, I'd rather be excluded for who I include than included for who I exclude. And everyone was like, oh. That is really interesting. It's also just like, it's it's a bit vague. Like, I, I, I like the line, but I wish you'd just be a bit more tangible about it. But what, what did the studios actually say? Yeah, so then Spyglass Entertainment confirmed all of this. And they said, 
that their stance is unequivocally clear. We have zero tolerance for anti-Semitism and the incitement of hate in any form, including false references to genocide, ethnic cleansing, Holocaust distortion, or anything that flagrantly crosses the line into hate speech. Which is, that is a, like, that is not mincing words. It's it's really interesting to qualify anti-Semitism against any claim about, like, the language around genocide, ethnic cleansing, because that's what's really mostly coming up between these sides is it's this use of language that's sort of, like, deducing everyone to picking this side mm. instead of just being able to identify that there's been deaths on both sides. One side has had a much larger number of, of killings, and that's a really... That's a really strong statement. I think so too, because from what I understand in her posts, like, yes, her posts were bold, but I don't think it was anti-Semitic. So then she took to her Instagram stories again to defend her comments. And she said, first and foremost, I condemn anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. I condemn hate and prejudice of any kind against any group of people. Every person on this earth deserves human rights, dignity, and of course, freedom. I believe a group of people are not their leadership and that no governing body should be above criticism. She then went on to say silence is not an option for me. That is incredibly bold and it's interesting because I think that a lot of what we're seeing coming out of the US is very much determined by the fact that they have a much higher Jewish population as well. Mm. So their media has a much stronger stance than ours even, even though our sort of coverage has clearly been lacking Mm. as in relation to the last story. But this is really interesting to see what's happening to someone who is in the spotlight, who is taking a stance and is being declared an anti-Semite because of it. Yeah. And then in the midst of all of this, it was then reported by Deadline that Jenna Ortega, who plays her little sister in the film, and, you know, Jenna's probably at the top of her game right now. She's huge. She was the lead actress in Wednesday. She was also in You. And she's come out and said that she's not returning to the franchise. It's being reported right now that it's due to a scheduling conflict, but all of the news around it is like that it's in support of Melissa. And then Christopher Landon, who is expected to direct the movie, then appeared to reference all of this on social media himself. And in a now deleted post on Twitter or X, he said, everything sucks. Stop yelling. This was not my decision to make. Wow. Sophisticated. Thank you for that, Christopher. Um, But I think it's really interesting because Melissa is not the only celebrity right now to be facing backlash for speaking out. Oscar award-winning actress Susan Sarandon, who's best known for Thelma and Louise, was dropped from her talent agency, UTA, after speaking at a pro-Palestine rally. Massive from her. It is massive. These These are, again, these are people that are backing in their own stances and really, like, taking a hard line, again, in a country that is even less tolerant of the alternate view. And that it's also worth noting, I read that pretty much a big dog at another Hollywood agency, CAA, was then asked to step down after she made Instagram posts about the conflict, one of which said, what's more heartbreaking than witnessing genocide, witnessing the denial of that genocide happening? And then according to Variety, one of her most famous clients, Tom Cruise, then made it known to CAA that he was backing her and he reportedly showed up at the agency's office to publicly show his support. So I think my first thoughts is like, you know, free speech. Is this ethical? Does this say something about censorship in our media, in the entertainment industry? I think a lot of the combatants to this sort of language is this idea that free speech is okay unless it meets hate speech. And a lot of the claim here would be that 
engaging in support of Palestine and in support of Palestinians and calling on Israel to stop killing Palestinians would be seen as hate speech, which it isn't. And it's seen as anti-Semitism, which it isn't. And I don't think anything that she has said actually amounts to hate speech. So therefore, she should be allowed to say it and it should be her freedom of speech. But the claim here really is that it is hateful and that it is spreading a messaging that is anti-Jewish people. And so I don't think what's happened to her is ethical, but I think that from their perspective, all they can see and conceive of is that what she's doing is amounts to her being an anti-Semite. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think we will probably see more of this. Absolutely. Keep you posted. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So just a content warning at the top of this story, the following piece discusses child sexual abuse. A new study released last week by the University of New South Wales has found that one in six Australian men report sexual feelings towards children. Before we get into this story, I just want to take a second to note how confronting the following information is. I know I've already provided a content warning, but this will be a confronting discussion for everyone. But I think that the reason this study is important, because it affirms what survivors of child sexual abuse have been telling us, and it's important to engage with uncomfortable information in order to make change. And that's why we need to address it, and we need to get uncomfortable, and we need to discuss it. So before we get into it, I just want to put that at the top. Just a note to dip out if you're really struggling with it, but it's a really important new story from the week to discuss. Mm. So this study by UNSW also found almost one in 10 Australian men has sexually offended against children and one in 15 men admit they would have sexual contact with a child aged 14 or younger if no one would find out. The study also highlighted that 30% of the men who responded that they had sexual feelings towards children want help. Now, I want to start by saying... When this report was initially released, the immediate thought I had in my mind was, if this is the amount of men who would actively admit in an anonymous survey to having these feelings and to having acted on these feelings, what is the true number? God. What is the, the most accurate data? Because I think a lot of people would hold so much shame they wouldn't even be able to admit it. So if this is the data of men who would freely admit to this... I don't know what that says about the actual statistic. Yeah. My first thing on this was one in 10 just felt too high. Like that felt, I can't wrap my brain around that. I know. And it's like, it's the largest study of its kind ever undertaken globally. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really landmark and it sets a precedent that I think, and also when I was reading the study, it matches the other peer reviewed data that's sort of comparative in the UK and US. So it's not like it's an extremely high number in Australia. It's actually matching and meeting other countries where they're at. So it's proving that the data isn't wholly inaccurate either. It's kind of reaffirming that it's right. Mm -hmm. So it's the first nationally representative research into the prevalence of child sexual offending behaviours and attitudes specifically among Australian men. And what's interesting about this is it's not going for men who have been convicted of these crimes. It's the first Australian study into offenders who the criminal justice system is not aware of. Yeah. Some other important parts of the report that I want to highlight is that the men who have offended against children were more likely to be married, be 
higher income earners and to work with children. Actually, they are three times more likely to be working with children. They are also more likely to use encrypted technologies and to watch violent pornography. The research undertaken involved this nationally representative survey of 1,945 men aged between 18 and over 65. Jesus. I think what's interesting about this, as much as it's shocking, it's not necessarily surprising because obviously it's a really, really evil, awful behavior that society has sort of positioned as this, as committed by perpetrators who live on the outskirts of society, like weirdos or people that Mm. we don't accept in our normal communities. But this data shows that isn't the case. But actually, when I was posting this survey on Cheek last week, one of the comments that kept coming up again and again was people saying any young woman who remembers what it was like to be in a school uniform, like walking down the street, understands this data. And that really struck me as well, because I think of like being catcalled at 14 or 15 in my school uniform. And I thought I hadn't really, that actually struck me because I thought, I don't know that it's everyone's experience, but I think a lot of us as young girls had those experiences and not that this data actually points to the exact same thing. It's not a complete parallel, but it was just an interesting piece of commentary that kept coming up again. I also, in that, the fact that it's high income married men that was really surprising to me. Absolutely. And again, I think that speaks to the classic stereotype and stigma that people who commit child sexual abuse face is that we position it as excluded from our areas that we live in. If we make it something that we can't perceive as happening to our neighbours or in our neighbourhoods by people we know and trust, we therefore can push it away from ourselves and sort of fail to take responsibility and to do the work to like have conversations with children and to identify the behavior before it happens and be preventative. And Mm. I think that if we actually change that narrative and understand these are people in our communities that we know and trust, we then can be more aware of how to stop it. A hundred percent. I think the results are also further evidence of what so many victim survivors of child sexual abuse have said, that offenders actively build trust within these communities. They, They weaponize external views of good character and their reputation in order to perpetrate these crimes. And the report calls on governments to invest in earlier prevention mechanisms and includes key evidence-based recommendations, including building safety into online romance and dating sites to reduce offender access to single parents. And this is a really interesting recommendation that I think a lot of people fail to understand. And I used to work in public prosecutions. And one of the patterns of behavior that I consistently saw in the cases that I worked with was that most often child sexual abuse was perpetrated by the partners of single mothers. Yeah. Or we all have a high awareness of the way that things like scouts and hobby groups for children and extracurricular activities, how men see positions of power within these groups and get access to children, even, you know, priests. Yeah, 100%. And it's also pointing out that this isn't, this study is children. It's not exclusively girls either. This is girls and boys. Yeah, absolutely. I think the stats are that it's one in four girls under the age of 15 and one in six boys. Mm. So it they it really doesn't discriminate. This is, and also a lot of the time boys, young boys are targeted specifically by these men because they hold more shame around it than girls. So they are less likely to report. 
Yeah. The other recommendations include additional safeguards in environments that pose a particular risk. So schools, daycare, children's social groups, as we were just talking about, and supporting people to identify problematic behaviours and also supporting the criminal justice system to improve their ability to target the cohort of men who pose this chronic risk to children, but are also skilled in avoiding detection and prosecution. It's an awful story. I think another thing that I was thinking of as you were talking about this is pornography. Like, you know, there's whole categories on school children and schoolgirls and younger and older or whatever it is, you know, that's, I would say, a pretty major factor or I wonder if that is. I think it is a major factor and as the, the evidence shows, they are more likely to watch violent pornography and I agree. It's the fetishization of schoolgirls and it is that younger, older categorization, absolutely, because what we have done socially is really allow young girls to become sexual objects in the minds of older men and some sort of pinnacle or ideal and it's really dangerous. So I think that there's a big conversation to be had at the moment around the banning of pornography for under-18s and the regulation of sites like Pornhub, which oftentimes we have no idea how they're regulated. We have no idea who is being used in the video footage, let alone who is accessing it. You know, it proves that there is this huge need to overhaul our attitudes and to spend more time looking at what we're consuming and what society is accepting in these behaviours. I also think that like we need to talk about, and I think this is a really uncomfortable point for a lot of people, but that 30% of men who identify having these feelings towards children who who aren't able to get help but want it. Mm. I think that we want to stigmatise and call these people evil, but they're coming forward and saying they want help and they want to overcome these feelings and not have them. They know it's bad, right? So we need to actually introduce mechanisms and systems and support services so they can actually get the help they need because that is one of the truest and and most effective prevention mechanisms. There's an understanding issue for the public. Now we have this data on hand to say, yeah, it's not the guy in the white van that you've been told about from 20 years ago from that one criminal case. It's someone who lives on your street. And I think it's all about accountability. Now that we have knowledge, it's about accountability and not wholly relying on children to come forward because often they don't even understand what's happened to them if they're very young. Yeah, it's now we have the information. It's what we do with it. Absolutely. And so it's it's really up to the public to disrupt this cycle that the evidence is clearly showing us exists. Brad Pitt was absolutely slammed for being a world-class asshole by his eldest son, Pax, amidst an ongoing messy custody battle between his two famous parents. This story, I think it's insane that it hasn't got more coverage. Brad Pitt is one of the biggest stars in the world, And these are some huge things coming out of his family and directly from his kids. Pretty much what's happened is a 2020 Instagram post made on Father's Day by Pax, who's Brad and Angelina's Jolie's first child, has resurfaced and been published by the Daily Mail. For a bit of background on this, Angelina adopted Pax when he was just three years old from an orphanage in Ho Chi Minh, and Brad then formally adopted Pax as his child as well about a year later. But the 19-year-old wrote, although he would have been 16 at the time, Happy Father's Day to this world-class asshole. You time and time again prove yourself to be a terrible and despicable person. You have no consideration or empathy towards your youngest children who tremble in fear when in your presence. So that's referring to, like, I think it's Zahara, Shiloh, and then the twins Vivian and Knox. 
Um, He went on to say, you have made the lives of those closest to me a constant hell. You may tell yourself and the world whatever you want, but the truth will come to light someday. Happy Father's Day, you awful fucking human being. Jesus Christ. I know. It's interesting that this happened a while ago, but it's only sort of gaining traction now. I think he posted it on his private Instagram and a screenshot is now circulating and that's why it's in the news now. But Brad has not directly responded to this, but one of his close friends has told the son that Brad has great respect for all of his children and it's depressing to see this dragged up. It's frustrating to see Brad being painted as some kind of bad person when it's far from the truth. He chooses to keep a dignified silence and that speaks volumes. He has actually kept this like dignified silence for a while, Brad has not publicly addressed or referenced his children since the split. Actually, that's not entirely true. I think he, for the first time, a reporter asked him about his daughter, Zahara, and he gave like a quick comment back. But apart from that, he's really been silent. And he also hasn't been photographed with them since the split back in 2016. And I think I vaguely knew this before, but... Following this, I did a bit of research surrounding just Brad and Angelina's ongoing custody battle for like the context around this. And from what I understand, the two share, well, they share three adopted and three biological kids. And initially, Angelina was given sole custody of the children while Brad was only given visitation rights. And then in May 2021, Brad was awarded joint custody, but the decision was later overturned. Apparently, in the court documents obtained by page six, and this was back in 2022, Angelina claimed that her ex-husband choked one of the children and struck another in the face and then grabbed her head and shook her, which was during, they were on a private jet. He also poured beer and red wine on the children. And then this incident, you know, became the catalyst for why they split. And I don't know, Brad has maintained his innocence on that and said that none of that is true, but his relationship also came into question this week, when footage of his daughter Sahara's initiation into college sorority came out, so footage of this was posted online and she sort of introduced her name as part of the initiation and she left Pitt off and she just kept it as Jolie. And the, the reporter, and that's what I was mentioning before, this reporter was like, oh, what was it like seeing Sahara's initiation? He was like, oh, it was beautiful. But everyone was like, that's a really big thing that she's cut his name out of her name entirely. But it has also, when I was researching this, it's been reported that Brad actually still does maintain a relationship with just his biological kids, but not with the other three. It's all really weird, this whole story. It is. And it's also, I just, I can't escape the feeling that I feel like I didn't know about the Instagram post, but I knew about the allegations of what happened on that flight Mm. Um, and I I just overwhelmingly think like Brad Pitt is someone who tends to in inverted quotations get away with it because Hollywood loves him the world loves him he's hot but it's also like this thing where Angelina Jolie has kind of just fallen to the wayside in terms of she's not very public anymore I haven't seen her doing much film work whereas Brad is continuously you know on tour going to different events like I feel like I see him out a lot just not with his children and not with his ex-wife yeah and it just feels to me like Hollywood and the press have decided that he's the good guy and they're not going to sort of drag his name through the mud but in my own like Instagram spaces I've seen actually a lot of criticism of him like anytime his name comes up I see a lot of posts about this flight and what happened so I'm actually shocked that I hadn't seen the Instagram post Mm. but I feel like I've seen a lot of criticism from him in online spaces oh that's interesting because when I 
was looking at the so the Daily Mail put up a few TikToks about this when all of this broke and I was interested in looking at the comments on it and I kind of when I went into it was expecting the you know these poor kids I hope he heals like all those sort of comments and actually what I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments being like how ungrateful of him um it got vicious it was like he should be thankful he was adopted like that is fucked it was fucked i know it's like the daily mail comment section but still i was like what i think it makes perfect sense from people that know they've engaged in the kind of behaviors there that are being criticized mm. like i think a lot of the time that but also they would never make the same claim of biological children as well and i think it's really awful and interesting that he's saying that it's being reported that he maintains a relationship but only with his biological children because I think that speaks to like this like that inherent fear that a lot of children of adoption have about the value and the difference and I think it's awful but also it may be all of their choice Mm. to not have a relationship with him but I still think it's such a terrible look. A hundred percent and the other thing I would say on this that I think is interesting is the fact that Yes, it's the biological kids that he's reportedly keeping contact with, but they're also the youngest. So they're also going to be the least likely to remember when it's the older kids that are going to have that relationship with their mother and that are going to be across or remember a lot more if it was a messy situation, which it sounds like it was. Absolutely. And just because of the fact that they're younger means that they probably need their parents for more things. So interesting to see what more comes out of this or if anything will come out of this, but a pretty big story with some pretty massive names. Marking the first time ever that a department head has been dismissed for misconduct, the longtime boss of Australia's Home Affairs Department, Michael Pizzullo, has been sacked from his role for breaching code of conduct. So, Pizzullo is one of the most powerful departmental secretaries in Canberra and served successive Labor and coalition governments in senior roles for decades. Mm. Now, I think a lot of people hear Department of Home Affairs and don't actually understand what this area actually oversees and takes responsibility for. So, the portfolio actually includes counter-terrorism, immigration and citizenship, cybersecurity, emergency management and social cohesion and a few other functions as well. And so, Pizzullo has led this key portfolio since 2017. But he was removed from the top job after an independent inquiry found he had breached the government's code of conduct at least 14 times. So the inquiry was led by former senior bureaucrat Linnell Briggs, and it was started after a series of text messages surfaced in which he had allegedly sent to a Liberal Party insider an attempt to influence political processes. So those text messages between Pizzullo and power broker Scott Briggs originally surfaced as part of a 60 Minutes investigation. And just just for context, Briggs is an influential Liberal Party figure who has been directly linked to multiple former Prime Ministers. Now, on Monday, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese released a statement confirming that the Governor-General had terminated Pizzullo's appointment as Secretary of the Home Affairs Department on his advice. So the inquiry concluded that Pizzullo had breached the rules in relation to five overarching allegations, which included using his power, status or authority to seek to gain a benefit or advantage for himself, failing to act apolitically, failing to disclose a conflict of interest and failing to maintain the confidentiality of sensitive government information. It also accused him of gossiping about other ministers and public servants. Like, this is just such a gossipy story from my perspective. This is so gossipy. The 60 Minutes thing is so dramatic, so gossipy. It's just that he's, he's literally just firing off text messages as if... It's like talking to a friend and he's not in any position of power. Like, it's bizarre. Anyone listening, this is actually our pop culture story for the week. (laughs) (laughs) But I also do think, like, I constantly am saying politics is gossip. 
politics can be more interesting than reality television, but it's been branded as boring and so no one pays attention. But this is seriously such an interesting take. Mm. And basically, like, I, I think this is fascinating too, this piece from The Guardian. Basically, according to the report, in the week that Peter Dutton challenged Malcolm Turnbull, which resulted in Scott Morrison becoming the Liberal leader, now this was this was back in 2018, Pizzullo texted Briggs about who would serve as the Home Affairs Minister. And the quote basically in the text was, you need a right winger in there. People smugglers will be watching. Please feed that in. Pizzullo also reportedly said he almost had a heart attack when he saw that then Foreign Minister Julie Bishop considered contesting the leadership. Now, the other text message I thought was of particular interest was, I don't wish to interfere, but you won't be surprised to hear that in the event of ScoMo getting up, I would like to see Dutton come back to home affairs. You just can't say this, buddy. It's just... So it's so chessboard. This guy thinks he's like leading the Liberal Party from behind the scenes. Like it's just so absurd. And also, like he's clearly saying he doesn't like Julie Bishop, the one of the one of the only key women in the Liberal Party at the time. Mm. And he's clearly playing this sort of chessboard with wanting Dutton to lead Home Affairs, who has famously had extremely conservative and uh, and racist views around immigration. A hundred percent. I think the funniest line is, "I don't wish to interfere." That is like the his equivalent of like, no offense. But like. yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. It's always just this like fishing, almost fishing to see if he has the influence and leading people down the garden path. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Also, I think that this is what's coming up the most in comment sections as well. Another notable aspect of this story is that Pizzullo won't receive a payout from his from the job from being sacked, basically. But he was on nine hundred thousand dollars a year. Huge. But basically this comes, this change to the rules comes after the remuneration tribunal changed the financial payout rules, which actually only happened last Friday. Mm. So if he'd got sacked a week ago, he would have got a payout, but he now won't get a cent, which is delightful from my perspective. (laughs) And I, I think that what this story speaks to is at its core, a public servant failing to act independently from political parties. And this is someone who is in the highest levels of government, clearly strategizing and attempting to influence ministerial appointments and to achieve outcomes that benefit and support his own political views and alignments. I think that this is a specifically contentious area of government because it has the power to influence things like, as we said, counter-terrorism and immigration. Mm. This is really serious stuff. And he is supposed to be able to serve apolitically governments from both Labour and the coalition. And he clearly cannot do that objectively. Yeah. We are now at the Q&A section of our episode. Thank you, guys. We know this was a heavy, heavy news week this week. So thank you for listening. I We do believe all those stories were really important. But again, totally get that that was not as giggly as we would have liked to have been. This. So we have picked a Q&A to lighten it up a little. So Steph wrote in and said, How excited were you both with Taylor Swift's announcements about her surprise songs? Now, Hannah didn't even hear this announcement until I showed her this Q&A this morning. But for those who don't know, Taylor Swift, during her concert this week, said that from 2024, she's going to reset her surprise songs. So all the songs are back on the table. Now, if you're not a Taylor Swift fan and that doesn't make any sense to you. Pretty much she does these surprise songs at her concerts where she takes two songs that aren't on the set list because she has simply a million songs and she plays them and you don't know which song is going to be the surprise songs each night. And when she first started the tour, she was like, I will never repeat a surprise song. I have so many that... 
you know, once it's done, it's done. And so people were getting really stressed when, like, these surprise songs would be sung. And it was like, no, <laughs> like, that's the song I wanted. So now she's come back and said, it's fair game in the new year. Thank God. Because I was worried we were going to get, like, Christmas Tree Farm or some shit. <laughs> I love Christmas here. Tree Farm. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> so my question to you, Hannah, is now everything's back on the table, what song do you want? I would just first and foremost like to say at the top of the story when you you dobbed me in and said Hannah wasn't even aware of it. <laughs> She's Sarah, in I'm Japan. in fucking Japan and I don't even have Wi-Fi. Like, no idea Some what's people are just across the news. <laughs> I know. Sorry, Sarah, my my journalistic flair friend. That's not fair. I mean, I've I've been actually enjoying myself and my phone freedom for a, a hot minute. But I liked that you got to tell me this morning what was up because I thought I actually thought when I read this question, I thought is Reputation TV been announced? and I've completely missed it. So I was glad that it was this reset. Now, my my top, I think, if I got to pick, I want would have, could have, should have oh. and you're on your own, kid. Great choices. Thank you. What about you? I think mine would be The Great War and You're Losing Me. <laughs> Why are we Midnight's girlies? Why are we so sad? We have like a recency bias and we're sad. No, I'm a Midnight's girlie through and through. I, I mean, it, it feels like it, it's, um, it sounds like we're fake fans. Actually, no, can I add this? I'm going to send this to you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. I... When, when I went on a date recently, the guy had done a full Taylor Swift Excel spreadsheet where he had, you basically, I found, he found it on TikTok, you rate every song and then it averages every album and ranks <gasps> them as your favourites. I'll send it to you because I did it and I was shocked. My top uh, reputation and folklore, which I'm not shocked by, but they had the exact same score, but oh. you should do it and we should give our answers. I think people would love that. And I'll also, I could share it on Big Small Talks, um, the link to the spreadsheet that everyone can do on stories. Oh my God, I'm so excited for that. We should, everyone should do that. And also good on him on this date. Who are you dating? <laughs> I know, it's crazy. I was like, that is 10 points right there. It was just super fun because we went through his spreadsheet and I was like, Wait. I got to determine if he was a red flag based on his rankings. What was his What was his top one? Uh, 1989. How do we feel about that? I think it's great. I think <laughs> I think 1989, also, final opinion, I think that my uh, like Speak Now and Fearless were completely lost in the rankings because of their From the Vault tracks for me. Whereas if they were just the OG albums, it would have been higher. But anyway, I'm going to link the spreadsheet. Um. I think this this is valuable because it helps people determine what they want their surprise songs to be as well. I love it. Thank you guys so much for listening again this week, live from Japan, <laughs> Sydney. <laughs> if you would please rate, leave a review, follow, tap the bell, all of the above. It means the world. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week. Actually, we're not going to see you next Tuesday. Next week, we're going to be in on Wednesday, not Tuesday, because we need Hannah to get back from Japan and she's going to be on a plane on Tuesday. So fair warning, it's actually going to be 5 p.m. Wednesday next week, but we're going to remind you guys on socials as well. See you next Wednesday.